Hey everybody, welcome to a brand new episode of Stuff Said. I am your host, Greg Shegel. I'm a cartoonist. I talk to people in the world of comic books, cartooning, etc., etc. Today is one such etc. Well, not it's not etc. I'm talking to Stephen Mayer, the assistant manager at Acme Comics. And Acme Comics is important for a number of reasons. One, it's a great store. It's been nominated for the Will Eisner Spirit of Comics Award, which is kind of like the Oscars meets the Hall of Fame sort of comic for comics and comic stores. They've been nominated for that three times or is it twice? I should look that up. If it hasn't been three times, it should be. They've been nominated multiple times. Also, Acme Comics is the the home of the Acme Wave Projector, which is a podcast network of which this show is a member. They also do, well, their, their show is called Acme Cast. And for anyone who has found this show through the Acme Cast, welcome. I hope you enjoy it and I hope you go back and listen to the uh, 14 existing hours of the show. And yes, you have to listen to all of them. You can't just pick and choose. You have to listen to every single episode. And then tell me you did that. And you can tell me you did that at Free Comic Book Day. Because I will be at Acme Comics on Free Comic Book Day, which is the first Saturday in May every year. This year it's May 5th. And I'll talk more about that after this conversation that you're about to hear. Uh, I don't even know really how to set this up because I ramble before every intro trying to figure out how to set it up even though we cover everything in the conversation you're about to hear so I will just say uh, we talk about a bunch of stuff we talk about comics a lot we talk about oh forget it listen here's me I'm talking to Stephen Mayer I'll talk more afterwards about free comic book day the ongoing contest and if you're curious about any of those things stick around or stick around anyway because I ramble more after the after this my talk with Stephen Mayer starting right now excited steven i am i'm nervous are you i'm nervous you shouldn't be so all right we'll get started then okay so i want to i want to cover a baseline of steven mayer because All right. I, as I was writing my list of, of things, I realized there's some stuff I don't even know. Okay. Like stuff that I probably should know. So, for example, I want to start with the pre-Acme Comics Stephen Mayer. All right. As we talk, you're wearing a Yankees cap. There's two I things am. I know about you. You are a weirdo Yankees fan. <laughs> These are the two things I know about you having nothing to do with comics. You're a weirdo Yankees fan who lives in North Carolina and... You have described yourself as having been an emo kid. Yes, that w- that would be an accurate description for my high school years. Although looking back at pictures, I feel like clown might be a better description. <laughs> <laughs> what is an emo kid? Like, what is it? What is what is it? Yeah, maybe that's like saying what's a hipster because nobody really knows. But what is an emo kid? Yeah, I guess that it was the kind of music that I was listening to stuff like brand new and even fallout boy and taking back Sunday when I was in late high school, early college. And then I think the, the grand signifier was wearing girl jeans. We didn't have all these nice tapered jeans that they have the kids have today. And so I was 
you know, I was squeezing into to Carly's jeans for a while. Carly being your now wife. Yes. And you guys then knew each girlfriend. other in high school? No, we met our freshman year of college in a a tumultuous meeting in which I went home and blogged angrily on LiveJournal about her because that's what you did back then. That's how you vented. So you were like a Facebook kid in the movie The Social Network. Yes, yes. <laughs> yep. What is his name? Except I, I don't have $7 billion now. <laughs> None of us do. What is Facebook kid's name? Mark Zuckerberg. Yes. <laughs> You'd think I would know that guy's name. <laughs> All right, so high school, you're an emo kid. You're wearing yes. ladies' jeans. What kind of hairdo? What what kind of hairdo does he? Is it like the hair in front of your face? The the classic hairdo that everyone remembers now was my mullet, which I had pretty well through middle school, and that thing hung down to the middle of my back. That's but disgusting. I cut that like my freshman year of high school, and then I couldn't really pull off the hair swept in front of my face because my hair is so curly. Yeah. So it was it was just always a mess. Okay, that's fair. All right, so you're an emo kid, and then as I understand it. The, the comic stuff didn't really kick in until you were in college. Carly got you back, quote-unquote, into comics. Because you, as a kid, most kids have some experience with comics. You faded out. You became an emo kid. Then you came back to comics. Is that accurate? Yeah, but it wasn't... Like, Carly liked comics. I remember on her door, she had, like, a collage of stuff. And one of the things on there was the White Queen, Phoenix, Adam Hughes cover to Wizard. And so I was like, oh, that's cool. She she does kind of like comics, but she was more into like anime and Sailor Moon. But then it was a guy that lived across the hall from me named Bobby Williams, who still comes in to shop at Acme from time to time. And he showed me Ultimate Spider-Man, Ultimate X-Men in conjunction with that, Why the Last Man and Powers. Those were like the four books that I would come to him with the store every week, just hoping one of those issues came out. And... Your earlier comic memories before the, the, the rebirth, what kind of stuff were you exposed to as a, as a youngster? I think the first comic I ever bought at Acme was, in 1992, the adaptation of Batman Returns. And I couldn't, I don't even know who worked on it. I don't still have the book or anything, but that's the first thing that I remember buying from Acme. And I was big into X-Men because of the 90s cartoon series. And you were and how old, roughly, in 92? You're like eight? Uh, eight. Okay. Eight. So then when I was a little bit older, I remember reading, and I've gone back and gotten a bunch of these comics, a lot of the X-Men stuff around X-Men 25. I remember Wolverine's skeleton being ripped out and, and all of that because my uncle in Dallas actually owned a comic book store, and really? my parents got me a mail-order subscription. So every month he would send me all the X-Books that came out, and I would just like tear into everything. And what was that store called? I, I don't even remember. It's not still in business at this point. Did you ever go when you were a kid like, to visit your uncle in Dallas or no? I went once. We were always closer with my dad's side of the family in New Jersey. But he also did like used books and stuff. And he had 70 Star Wars toys in there. So it wasn't strictly comics. It was just kind of also comics. Yeah, I didn't. I, I followed that line to see if, like, maybe you went there as a kid and was like, yeah, I'm comfortable here. Oh, no. Crawl. no. So your your family in New Jersey is probably the Yankee thing. Yes, yes. My grandpa 
going back to the 50s, tried out for the Yankees and was offered a spot on their one of their farm teams, but he stayed with my grandma rather than doing all the traveling and stuff to get on the road to being a major league baseball player. Huh. Fascinating. He hit a home run at Yankee Stadium. And what was his name? Emil Sensi. Emil Sensi. Yes. What is E M I L and then last name C E N C I. Did he have a baseball card? No, because he never went pro. Uh, he's in he's been inducted into the Wagner College Sports Hall of Fame, Wagner College on Staten Island. What kind of name is Emil Sensi? Uh Italian. Okay. I guess yeah, Sensi, that makes sense. And then Mayer is is what? What is the derivation of Mayer? French Canadian and Irish, I think. Because it's it's like could be Jewish. It's like that close. Because you got a Meyer. <laughs> no, it was it was Catholic on both sides. Right, but I'm just saying, like one letter off, yeah. you're yeah. a Jew. Are you into any other sports, or is it just baseball and just the Yankees specifically? It's just baseball, but I can, and it's just the Yankees specifically. But I can get into some stuff like watching the Super Bowl at my parents' house. You know, that was a good game, or we were at a burger place and there was a good Big Ten basketball game going on yesterday. So I can kind of get into anything else, but. You know, knowing player names and numbers and histories and the lore of the sport is just the Yankees. And I always think of it like it's not that dissimilar from comics. You know, know, the Red Sox are the nemesis. They are the evil guys. There's continuity. Players come and go just like people come in and off the team. So when people are like, of course, I don't like sports, you know, I don't get it. Then I don't understand how they like comics, too, because it's a it's a regularity. I get to go home and watch a game, you know, every night, just like I can get new comics every Wednesday and stuff. So I see a lot of parallels between sports and comics or anything nerdy for there oh, to be the, so much of a rivalry between the two. Yeah, the parallels I remember in, in junior high school myself, people being amazed. How do you remember these costumes? How do you remember, you know, the characters' identities? And I was like, you know, stats and numbers in a way that I could never, I just don't care about it. We're we're doing the same thing, and this was before being a geek was cool, and like everybody <laughs> yeah. was claiming nerdhood. I mean, to that to that matter, I don't even know if in high school or junior high school I was a nerd because I wasn't socially outcast. Which is I was talks about. for sure. I mean, there was there was the mullet. I was really into NASCAR, which by the time I was like a senior in high school had become something cool. But when I was in middle school and elementary school, that wasn't cool. I remember kids making fun of me. I had this awesome Batman the Animated Series shirt that had, like, character designs of every character in the show. Yeah. And kids made fun of me for that. Uh, I mean, I would go home and read Star Wars Essential Guides, like the Encyclopedia of Star Wars and stuff. I, I was a nerd. I was an outcast. Poor Steven. Now you're, like, the king of the nerds. Yes, we, we will rise about, up. We're going to talk we about have. that. Okay, so then in college, you sort of you begin your uptick of comics reading, and is that when you become more entrenched with Acme Comics and when you encounter Jermaine Exum, aka Lord Retail? I I was a customer here. I did fall under the influence of Lord Retail. I remember him selling me New Avengers when that first started, which that's only going back like eight years now, but. I remember him selling me New Avengers when it first started, Astonishing X-Men. I still hold it against him that he sold me House of M and every single tie-in, even though I had no idea what Thunderbolts was or Mutopia X 
or any of the other number of worlds that crossed over into that event. He still sold me everyone and took my money for it. Well, it still amazes me that that's your starting point for reading comics because that, you know, it would have been 2000, 99, 2000. Yeah, no, 2000, 2001, right? Is when um, I, sort of... I think it was like 2003, 2004. But like I'm saying, would Ultimate Spider-Man, Ultimate X-Men, that was... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was 99, 2000 yeah, stuff that I was going back and reading. Like that kind of stuff is when I started to sort of drift down and be like, none of this stuff is the same. For that to be the point where somebody starts is still... I've known you now so, a number of years. It still blows my mind. But I forget. I, your, to this day, journey. give a lot of credit to Bobby Williams, though, the guy that gave me those first books, because in addition to the Ultimate X-Men and the Ultimate Spider-Man, like I said, there was Why the Last Man in Powers. He showed me Goodbye Chunky Rice and Blankets by Craig Thompson. He showed me Mother Come Home by Paul Hornschmeyer. So there was a lot of different tastes coming into that that have continued on today. So he was giving you a holistic view. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I would imagine that Jermaine was a much more focused, specific kind of influence on you. Exactly. Possibly more mainstream? Definitely more mainstream. I think I think he still was a big fan of Powers because of Bendis sure. and Why the Last Man was just coming into its own around, I think it was around issue 18 or 20. So people were really starting to take notice of it. So that was getting more into the mainstream. But yeah. And I remember him putting me on Criminal when that first came out, you know, so it wasn't all superheroes all the time. He did have other great recommendations. So at what point do you, well, what did you study in college? That's one of the things I realized I didn't know about you. I went in, I was going to be a pharmacy major because I was like, oh, I can get out and make 70,000 a year. That'll be awesome. Didn't really take, I was at a very liberal arts focused college so I went over to English for a while. I thought about doing journalism, but all of those classes were 5 o'clock on Wednesdays, and I had to get to the store to get my comics, so I dropped all those classes. I tried to do creative writing, but never really had a drive to tell stories and things like that. And then the other side of the coin was I ended up being like two courses shy with all my AP credits from high school of getting a second major in history. So I ended up double majoring in English and history. Interesting. That actually makes sense. That that doesn't ring untrue based on what I know. <laughs> you'd be uh, in, in that realm. All right. So you graduate with this degree. You're hanging out at Acme. When does, when does your hanging out at Acme become employment at Acme? I want to say it was January 14th of 2007. I just remember that because the next day I was going to a Fallout Boy concert that Jermaine sent me a message on MySpace and he said, we have all these comics sitting around the store that need to be bagged. You want to come by and bag them for us? That was, you know, didn't require too much, too much knowledge of the world of comics to handle. So I came in and started bagging. And then one day he was like, you know, there's a sign on the door. We're looking for somebody. And I was like, oh, yeah, I noticed it. And he was like, you should probably apply. So I think he was already grooming me. And then the interview process was a two-month gauntlet where I would just be sitting behind a counter bagging books. And he would just walk over and be like, what's the one book that you haven't read that everybody says that you should read? And I'd say, Watchmen. And he'd say, interesting, and walk away. And then two days later, he'd come over and he'd say, if somebody came in and they liked this book, what's the one book that you would recommend to them 
within that same vein. And I'd tell him and he'd say, interesting, and walk away. And then eventually I was like, all right, do I have the job or what? And he was like, you should probably put in your two weeks notice at Outback. All right, so you were at Outback. You were just working yeah. a job. You had an English degree and a history degree. Well, this was while I was still in school. Oh, so it was my school. final semester. Okay. So then once this happens, you get this job offer. You're now going to work at a comic store. I assume this was – was this for assistant manager or was this just somebody – This was just somebody to work the store, kind of the, the last guard. You know, Jermaine's been around for like 15 years, but in that time there's been like three levels of guys that have – you know, they worked at the store for four or five years and then went on to get their degrees or work in the professional sector or just do something else. So one of those shifts had just taken place and he was kind of looking to recruit. Right. And were you his first official hire? For Jermaine or for this yeah, general like Jermaine, round? Like Jermaine hiring employees? No, no. He had, he had hired and fired many before me. Okay. All right. Didn't know where you were in the, in the pantheon of Jermaine recruits. <laughs> so once you start working at the store, the impression I get, there's two things I want to talk about in terms of working at the store. One is I want to know what it's like to work at the store. But beyond that, Jermaine looms large at Acme Comics. And you had not worked in a store before. Um, basically, the question is, what kind of habits and methodology and things did Jermaine sort of impart upon you, consciously or unconsciously? as a reader, as a collector, as all of these things? I guess that the, the main thing is that Acme is built on a love of comics, and it's built on the idea that comics are meant to be read. It's not about getting them home and slabbing them or just keeping a run going. If, if you're enjoying something, if you love a book, keep reading it. If it's not doing it for you, find something else. The world of comics is big and broad and... There's something for everybody out there at all times. So if you're not happy with what you're reading, then try something else. Now, is is there an attitude you had about comics that changed once you were, once you were in the gravitational pull of Jermaine? I will say that I used to hate collections, and this was even in 2004. You couldn't just go out and get a trade paperback of everything. They didn't. Not everything got collected. Not everything lived on after the shelf life of the single issue and I hated trades when I started working at the store I had maybe four or five things so if there was a book that I should have read like Watchmen I would be like oh I'm gonna wait until I can get Watchmen in single issues or Batman year one I'm just gonna get that in single issues and so I probably wasted a lot of money doing that and <laughs> a lot of time doing that but Jermaine really showed me that it's okay and through paperbacks and and hardcovers, I was able to go back and I think I can fool quite a few people now with my knowledge of uh, of the backlist of comics history. Yeah, no, you, you've certainly, over the years that I've known you, talk about, yeah, I went back and read the 40-issue run of this, that, or the other, and it's like, you are really catching up rapidly. <laughs> Let's talk about life at Acme Comics. Let's do a, right. little, a little block of that. You are the assistant manager now. You've been yes. the assistant manager for how long? Basically, since I started, I mean, by September of 2007, we had already been through like three other employees. So it was just me and Jermaine at that point. And he was kind of like, well, you're still here, you know, welcome to the big show kind of thing. And 
I was bumped up to full time and I've been working full time at the store and been the only consistent employee other than Jermaine since that point. But the what it meant to be the assistant manager, or I think even to be the manager and to be in in one of the top positions at the store has really changed over the course of the last half decade. Let's talk about your responsibilities at the store. What is it that you do day to day, week to week, month to month? Or month to month, day to day, or month to month, week to week, day, whatever order you want to break yeah. it down. In. I work Tuesdays to Saturdays. We're closed on Sundays and I have Mondays off. But Tuesdays, I'm checking in the shipment. I'm reporting any shortages that we have, getting everything ready. Lately, I've been doing all the subscriptions for our 438 subscribers. And I also put together our weekly email that goes out every Tuesday night. Wednesdays, I make our this week's comics list. I make a split list that we use in-house. I do a whiteboard of all the books that are coming out the following week. And I just generally help customers on Wednesdays as well. Wednesday nights, we record our podcast. And Thursdays, I spend a good chunk of the day editing that as well as doing my Acme First Look blog. And Friday is just kind of any administrative task that needs to be done, like planning a signing or putting things on eBay, other stuff that, that takes me off the sales floor. And then you're also responsible, or are you not responsible for, for the ordering of the books and the dealing with Diamond, the distributor of the books? Um, I have a relationship with them as well, and I do reorders with them. Doing a monthly order, we usually start working on about two weeks before it's due, which we order two months out on most books. So, you know, right now I'm working on the order for books that are going to be showing up in May, and we're recording in March. So that's kind of where my head is at this week. And then you do that solo, or you and Jermaine together work on that? I can do it on autopilot pretty well at this point. One of the first things that Jermaine had me do that first summer at the store was he was like, okay, you're going to do the order. And he had me do an entire order by myself. And then he would go through and anything that he didn't agree with, he'd be like, well, why are you only ordering this many copies? And then he threw the whole order away at the end of it and did it himself anyway, not because I hadn't done it right, but... It was just a very early introduction to the ordering process and to that side of retail. So at this point, five years later, I can kind of do it on autopilot for the most part. And then we get together on books like Avengers versus X-Men number one or Secret number one this month. You know, what are we doing on those? Where's the interest at? Because those are things that you don't have solid pre-orders or subscription numbers for yet. So you're just, you know, throwing something out there and hoping it works out. Yeah, so I want to talk about that a little bit. The idea of, of ordering a book two months ahead of time. I mean, I flip through previews. I go page by page. And there are some things I see that I, my, my, my eye just goes right over. There are other things that I'm curious about. But you must look at it completely differently because you're looking at, can I sell this? Is this something we want? In this? Like how beyond Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, Image, IDW, Boom. Is that like that's like the big. Yeah. Five. That's the big, the like big how chunk. Do you, but how do you manage that second half of, of previews? How do you even determine this is a book we're going to get behind, or this is a book that could be a thing, and this we're going to ignore completely? Honestly, nice cover design is a big thing for me. Like, there was a book that just came out this week called Blue from Top Shelf, and I didn't see anything in previews except the cover and like a two line solicit that didn't tell us much. But I was like. 
man, that looks like a pretty book, you know? So I think design goes a long way towards that. A good solicitation. I once ordered two bottles of Star Trek red shirt cologne because it had an air of disposability to it. And the whole solicitation was just, it was like somebody, somebody put all the effort of writing a 22 page comic into writing a 100 word solicitation for red shirt cologne and we were laughing about it we were sharing it with people and i was like you know they win they have to win for this even though we'll probably never sell it a good solicitation a good cover that's that's about all that you can do there or just reach out through email or through twitter and show previews if you have them available well first did the cologne sell it did eventually yes all right both bottles but i wanted to make sure we covered that you know, <laughs> there's there's really nothing that we can't sell here, but no so it did term. eventually make it out. Let's talk about seeing a solicit, seeing a preview, because what I notice a lot on the creator reader side is there's a lot of people who make comics that then try and sell them to the reader, try and do a thing where they go, here's a preview of the book on Newsarama or Comics Alliance or what have you. Here's the order code. Order it from your store, which in some cases, I was just having this conversation the other day. In some cases, that seems like a like a fruitless kind of attempt because if you're if let's say you write a mystery comic and you're trying to get people to buy this and pre-order this book, that's a very specific audience that may not be checking previews or Newsarama or any of these sites. They may just go into a comic store and not know that this is a mystery comic. So in that regard, going back to what you were saying about emails and sort of selling a book directly to you as the guy ordering the books. Do you find that happens very much or do people not work that angle? I don't think people work that angle. And just personally, I have never had anybody bring me an item code. Even when, like you say, on Twitter, somebody puts it out there like that. I've never had that. We even sell, you know, 20 or 30 copies of Previews Magazine a month. And I have two people that bring back an order form on the regular. So the the systems that are out there that people push like that they don't really come together and usually the best you can hope for is somebody the night before something comes out they say that they want it they send an email or they call and they say you know can i get this tomorrow is you know the best that we hope for and it usually works out but one of the things that was really interesting at the comics pro meeting in dallas in february was that terry moore was there because he was like you know i've been selling to the same three thousand people for the last 20 years so what do i have to tell you what do you want to know in order to break through that number to get you guys to sell because i'm just selling like you said to a very niche market and i'm not reaching anybody else so what do i have to say to you what do you want to hear that'll make you carry more of my book and push it so that was really cool that terry moore was you know the only creator there other than like jim lee at this entire event and he was just that interested in hearing telling the retailers what they need to hear to have confidence in rachel rising or strangers in paradise pocketbooks and and did anyone answer the question did anyone respond to Terry Moore's inquiry? I think part of the problem at the retailer summit was that a lot of the discussion was done in small groups where there were only like three retailers and three people from whatever given company and nobody really wanted to get into it with somebody on a one-on-one basis like that. So I think a lot of times people were like, no, no, we totally sell Strangers in Paradise. It does awesome for us, you know, onto the next table where they're trying to sell you baby clothes. 
Well, let's let's run the hypothetical. What what do you think you could do, or what would you tell Terry Moore? Is there anything? I mean, have you thought about it all? I mean, again, we're running the hypothetical that isn't a hypothetical, but is. That was a brain bender. <laughs> I'm trying to think because there are books that made a huge splash. Like we we were talking recently about a book called Light Children that it seemed like everybody was talking about like four or five years ago. And they were hand-selling to retailers. They were hand-selling to to readers. And they never came out with a second volume on that book. I have no idea what happened to the company that put it out or anything. So I would say just persistence and and confidence in what you have to sell. But like somebody like, again, specifically this Terry Moore situation where he's got readership. Obviously, he's able to continue to self-publish. He hasn't had to go to Image or, or go to Dark Horse or whoever. Or, or he hasn't even made the deal that you know Jeff Smith has made over at, at Glastic. So Terry Moore is asking retailers, "How do I, you know, how do I break this? How do I get more readers? How do you help me get more readers? Is there a way you can do that? Is there a way you can say, listen, look at these ten or fifteen Strangers in Paradise books. You should read these because you like blank. Or is he so niche that he sort of painted himself into his own little corner? One of the big things that I was talking about to everybody there to marvel to dc to image was have a lower entry point on whatever you have you need to hit i would say if you can hit ten dollars on your first paperback even if it's only the first paperback for the first four to six issues of that then that's the way in and so terry moore's idea right now is to do a giant omnibus in strangers in paradise or these undersized pocket editions that are, you know, three or four trades in each volume, but then you're paying $20, $25 for an undersized paperback. And so I'd say hit that $10 mark, still have some version of Strangers in Paradise out there. Or when the first Rachel Rising collection comes out, hit that $10 mark and you can do what books like Chew have done, Why the Last Man, Fables, Irredeemable. These are all books that aren't necessarily appealing to mainstream audiences, but when you can say, here's the first collection for 10 bucks, and here's the next issue for 99 cents, you might take a hit in the short term, but then when you're on issue 25, like Irredeemable is now, or maybe Irredeemable's in the 30s, and Fables is off to 115, how many times have they done a reprint of Fables number one for a dollar or for a quarter? And so you just need to keep pinging people with that entry point, that cheap entry point, and then you can get them back again. So I think if Terry Moore did have the structure at Abstract Studios to do a Strangers in Paradise number one free comic book day edition or 50 cents for the first issue or even a buck or do, you know, a select story in a single trade for nine ninety nine, I think he would have more success with people than the, the current structure of the books. Interesting. I mean, I know it's a book that I've always thought I should read. It's one of those things that, like like Jermaine asked you, a book that people say you should read that you've never read. I feel like I should be reading or should have read Strangers in Paradise. Never did. But then I just see how much, how many there are. And mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm never going to have time to read all. Even though I probably could make the time, I certainly waste plenty of time doing other things. Well, but, even uh, Echo, his last book that only went for about 25 issues the way that's going to be available now is in that complete paperback that's like 30 dollars which isn't a bad deal for 25 issues but if somebody's like i have no idea what this is about i'm ready to take a chance on it 
$25 is a lot to ask. And I think Marvel is really messing up now doing all their Ultimate Edition collections where you're talking about $40 for a paperback? Like, I don't care who wrote it. I'm probably not going to pay $40 for a story by anybody that I haven't read before. Yeah, well, that's a whole other topic we could talk about that has nothing to do with what we should be talking about, which is you. <laughs> that's getting back into the regarding comics uh, state yes. of things. Which is actually a nice segue because you do work beyond the sort of confines of the store, all in the, you know, for Acme Comics and, and for what you do, but you have broken past the walls of Acme Comics on Lawndale Avenue in terms of, you, as you mentioned, you do your weekly uh, newsletter and blog, which you send out your mailing list. On that, you have your own specific personal blog, uh, my so-called Emo Life. It mm-hmm. used to be its own blog, right? Now it's just part of the Acme Mailer? Yeah, yeah. And that's you just like spewing whatever's in your head and whatever happened that week? Yeah, I tried to model it. That came from Bendis has a column in the back of Powers called No Life where he just talks about whatever movies or TV shows or whatever he really enjoyed that month. And when I started out, it wasn't too hard. But sometimes it's hard to come up with, you know, five new things people should check out every week and have it be quality stuff. So I'm doing my best with it. But even the one that I wrote this morning was only like three things. And I was like, it makes me feel bad about my past week. Like, why am I not doing more with myself? So you do that, you, you do that blog. And then for, for, I guess, a year and a half or so, you and I wrote a column on the Acme site where we would have these back and forth email conversations called Regarding Comics, mm-hmm. which again was reaching past the walls of I work in a store, I bag comics, I sell comics, I order comics. And now recognizing that you are an English and history major, this all sort of makes sense. There's sort <laughs> of a, a, a bit of, of um, there's like an archival nature to what you're doing. Uh, you're almost like a, a historian in the moment recording this stuff, recording moments in time for some kind of posterity. Yeah, and the thing with regarding comics, and I kind of had to push you for a while and kind of drag you into it at first, but did. you and I met at Baltimore Comic Con 2008. Does that sound right? Possibly. At this point? And immediately hit it off like I have with few people in my life and when we got back we were Facebook messaging a lot and just these questions would come up and a little like hey how's it going would turn into a treatise on whatever and I was like people want to hear this and so that's kind of where the where the column started from but I do like to see the arc of things and one of the things that I said on a recent podcast of ours is we were talking about digital comics and you and I talked about digital comics before the iPad came out and it's like to see where they are now back then we were like well this is probably just the beginning they're still going to be evolving and working on what a digital comic is and then on a recent podcast I was like this is still the beginning they're still working out how this is going to work and so I do like to track the way that the industry is trending and people's feelings about things with the new DC logo that everyone hates. I remember when everybody hated the swoosh logo when it replaced the bullet six or seven years ago. And and let's talk about the podcast because the podcast is another example of stretching the the web of Acme Comics beyond the walls of the store and creating it. Essentially, you're, you're essentially building a brand for yourself, for the store, beyond it just being a store. So how did, because I know when we were doing Regarding Comics, you mentioned a couple of times, you want to do this as a podcast, and again, super resistant, now I have a <laughs> podcast of my own, 
But that probably comes from more of me being a bit of a control freak. But you wanted to do a podcast. You had this idea of building yet another dimension. You know, if, if, if Acme Comics on its own is a standard die, you're like building it up into a 20-sided die <laughs> to keep this appropriately uh, in, the, in the realm of genre. So what was the intention of the, of the podcast? Because you were also, I remember you saying specifically, you hate the sound of your own voice. So I don't hate it as that. much as Jermaine does. I mean, I'm the one that has to immediately listen to it for three hours the night after we record. So I've gotten a little more used to it. But Jermaine, definitely, he, he can't even listen to the podcast back after we've recorded them. But what was the intention of the podcast? And, and what was your, your mission statement when you said, this is what we're going to do. Here's why we're going to do it. I guess it was kind of like, and I almost hate myself for saying this, like Big Bang Theory, but real, or Comic Book Men, but real, because there used to be a counter out at the front of the store, and Jermaine and I would take lunch at that counter and just sit there, and while we were eating, we'd talk about, you know, on Thursday, the books that we had just read the night before, talk about whatever comic movie was coming out or whatever event was going on. And we'd just have a steady stream back and forth for like an hour and people would kind of come and just hover around and listen in on whatever we were talking about. And then we'd crumple up our trash and say, well, there goes another podcast and throw the trash away and just on with the day. And then really when I pushed to get my first Mac here at the store in August of 2010, I was like, man, this thing is just saying, do I want to make a podcast right now? You know, when you open GarageBand, just looking around, it's like, are you ready to start a podcast? And I was like, I think I am. And I pulled out a eight-track mixer that I had from when I was emo and recording my own emo tunes in high school and cobbled together some microphones. And it just started out as me and Jermaine sitting there talking for like 20 minutes and being like, I think that's enough. Is that enough? And, you know, the first Acme casts are, are pretty short and... Now you can't get us to shut up on most nights. <laughs> but now, was it was it literally just a case of, I've got the technology, we might as well do a, a podcast? Or was there a, a bigger sort of, not to keep saying mission statement, but was there this idea? Because at the time, the TV show Comic Book Men didn't exist. Mm -hmm. So you weren't necessarily fighting against this. Unless maybe you were. Were you fighting a cliche? Were you saying, this is going to be a thing that's going to fight the cliche of comic book store guys? No, and it was it was branding of the business and branding of ourselves. We had a meeting one summer at our friend Joe Schramm's house, who's a former manager of Acme from back in the late nineties, and we were just saying, you know, with digital comics, with Amazon, with discount comic book service, how do we remain relevant out there? What is it that we provide that goes beyond the books? And so even though we were already doing things like regarding comics, you know, I was like, let's get the podcast off the ground. And at this point, I think the name Lord Retail rings out much more so than even the name of Acme Comics or the name of Jermaine Exum. And I never clung as hard to the may or may not identity that I kind of, the costume that I put on. I've I'm not the character that Jermaine is, and I work much better behind the scenes. But it was all about providing a sense of community and a sense of a sense of leadership for the entire world of comics that any average store just putting the books on the shelf couldn't achieve. And and do you find the podcast gets a reach beyond your core customers and me? Yes. <laughs> um, I don't get 
as much feedback from anybody as I do from you, which I do appreciate. And yeah, we definitely get a lot more people listening and in some unusual places. Like we have quite a, a following in Little Rock, Arkansas that I have no idea why that's the case because my brother doesn't even live there anymore. So that's not even him and his friends. I, I can't say why we have the following in Little Rock, Arkansas or San Francisco or St. Louis is another big region that we have. And I can't say how those people heard about it or what they're really enjoying about it because I don't hear from them that much. But the reach of the podcast is definitely higher than the store because we usually only we have 430 some odd subscribers and usually see about 500 people through here a week. But every episode of the podcast is nearing a thousand unique downloads now. So. So it's definitely people beyond the range, and it helps when you have Joe Hill retweeting to 135,000 people that he was on the show. But then, you know, when he, Joe Hill retweets to 135,000 people, you hope, okay, I hope 1% of that 135,000 listens to it. And then I hope 10 or 20% of that 1% hangs around for the next episode. So you play a game like that, and in my head... The whole time with the podcast, I've always questioned how many people need to still be listening where I'll be happy or what at what point when we level out, will I still be happy when we're not gaining new listeners? And we really haven't hit that point yet. And then at the end of the day, you guys are a retail store. You're a business. So do you think about how do we monetize this? How do we actually turn this into a profit center or an income center at the very least? I think it works out. Like I always say, Acme Comics sponsors the podcast. Jermaine and I actually own the rights to the show as far as copyrights go. But Acme Comics sponsors it because they see a direct return. When we talk about Lock and Key one week, then you know five people come in and buy Lock and Key Volume 1. Or there's this whole generation of readers who have no idea who Brian K. Vaughn is. So we did a reordering of Why the Last Man, Ex Machina, and Pride of Baghdad. And then after we talk about it on the show, a lot of people that listen are going to be coming in. And we've gotten a couple mail order subscribers from from the show as well. So that's that's all new revenue coming in that wasn't there before. You can't hand sell to all 500 people that come in, but I guess you can to the thousand people that are listening. Right. And then again, when you play those averages where, okay, a thousand people listened and five or ten of them came in and bought something that we talked about, then... We just made enough money to pay for all the bandwidth and to pay for all the time that we put into right. it. You've just, you've just monetized in an mm-hmm. indirect way. Yes. So you and Jermaine are the, are the, the Acme team. Jermaine is pretty entrenched over at Acme Comics. He is, mm-hmm. he is Lord Retail. He is essentially the name and face of that store. I get the impression he's not going anywhere. <laughs> impression it's true. He, he, he might be buried in a comic box. <laughs> under, the, under the surface of Acme Comics. Meanwhile, the retail market is constantly changing. There's all these new developments, whether it's digital or, as you mentioned, big box stores or online stores and all of these things. You yourself are constantly changing. You've gotten married. That's usually a forebearer of, of starting a, a different family life or what have you. Um, <laughs> do you think much about your, your professional future? Or is it like, this is such a cush gig. I get to come in, 
I read comics. Sometimes I'll buy comics and read those. I watch movies. I hang out. It's like summer vacation every day, except I have to work five days a week. Or do you think, do you have in the back, not back of your mind, but do you think like, all right, Jermaine's not going anywhere. Unless there's a second Acme that opens up somewhere. I want to maybe, because you obviously are fiddling with podcasts and all these other ephemera. Does your head go there or are you just enjoying the ride? It used to bother me a lot. The first year we were nominated for the Will Eisner Spirit of Comics Retailing Award, somebody had written a letter of recommendation and they were like, Jermaine and those guys do a great job. And I remember he was really excited reading it. And I was like, what do I have to be excited about? I'm just one of those guys. <laughs> but but I'm happy doing what I'm doing on a daily basis. And, you know, my wife or especially my parents have been doing the same thing for my mom's been at her job like 15 years and my dad like 30 for his and they hate going every day. And I don't get that feeling. Some days are rougher than others, just like they always are. But I'm still happy doing what I'm doing, but in the long run, looking at guys that have worked in stores before, like, you know, I'm not going to be Brian Michael Bendis who worked at a store and now he's the biggest comic writer in the world or anything, but there's a guy named Chris Powell who used to work for Lone Star Comics in Texas, and he just got a job at Diamond Comics in Baltimore, who are the main distributor for all comics, as the head of direct market outreach and expansion. And basically that just means working directly with retailers to figure out how to grow them as businesses and grow more comic book stores or help those existing stores expand. And so... He was just a retailer with a lot of good ideas and, you know, it's gone on to something different. I don't know if it's necessarily better. I haven't talked to him about it since he took the position, but, you know, it has led to a different career opportunity for him than he ever could have expected. And I think it's the kind of thing where you get out of it what you put into it in a big way. And so I could sit here and just bag comics all day and read comics on the clock and watch movies on the clock, but learning how to do a podcast or editing our Eisner video or putting together stuff for YouTube or putting together a press release, all of that, you know, might come in handy for something else one day and it might just make us a better store. Now let's, let's talk about what makes Acme a better store. And more specifically, let's talk about the events you guys throw. And more specifically than that, let's talk about free comic book day, which is a huge thing that you guys do now it's like four years at least that you've been making it this mega what you might call a mini con Mm -hmm. so let's talk about free comic book day and and sort of the intention there the fun what it does and what it does to you sort of as a emotionally and physically because it is taxing to say the least (sighs) the motivation behind that really goes back to acme in the late 80s early 90s when those guys that were managing it way back then used to put on AcmeCon every year. And they had guys like Jack Kirby and Will Eisner and John Byrne and, you know, pretty much anybody that you can say like, oh, they're one of the greats. Well, they were at an AcmeCon. And then that just eventually dissolved before even Jermaine came around. And so it just kind of been going through the motions for a few years. And then I guess it was October of 08. Jermaine was like, I think we should try to do a real in-store signing and bring people in from out of state. And we 
flew in Tony Bedard and Sean McKeever, and it went over pretty well, but we had never tried anything like that before. And then, you know, from two, we went to three people, and we brought in Chris G and Jen Grunewald and Jim McCann for assigning the following March, and then we just kept building and building. And now, I mean, the way the guest list for Free Comic Book Day comes together is like, who who do we want to hang out with? Who would we love to be here? And so you and Chris and Smitty and Jacob are like our best buddies in the industry. And we're like, oh, they have to come. You know, they they trust us. They always make it a good time. You guys are all troopers when it comes to Free Comic Book Day. All you guys have to come. Kelly Yates is good friends with Craig Russo. And so you know, Kelly told Craig about it and he had such a good time that he's going to come in. And so it just becomes like a who's who. And it really feels like there's no one that's too, too far out of reach to bring in for a free comic book day. And that's Jermaine and I have been operating under the notion of, we didn't know we couldn't do that (laughs) for the last, you know, three years, as far as this stuff getting bigger and bigger goes, like we didn't know, we couldn't have people camping out overnight for last free comic book day, or we didn't know that we couldn't live stream it on bleeding cool or any of the other, you know, step ups that we do. We're just like, you know, let's try it. The way Nick Spencer came to last year's show was we were like, it's just missing something. And we had never talked to Nick about anything before, but we were like, it's just missing something. Nick Spencer, that's what it is. And even though he comes from the UK, we inquired about it, having never spoken to him before, and it all came together. In terms of we didn't know we couldn't do that and nobody is too far out of reach, you got Brian Bendis there, which I know was a huge deal. I know it was a big deal for Jermaine. Is there anyone that might just maybe be out of reach? (laughs) Matt Fraction's been putting up a fight for a few years, but he has... He has two young children at home okay. that I know he doesn't want to leave alone for too long. Bring the kids with him. Yep, yep. <laughs> and he does have family in North Carolina, so that's yeah. our one our one ace yeah. in the hole there. Jeff Johns has been playing really hard to get from even before he was chief creative officer at DC, but I think we have something that'll bring him around eventually. And my personal effort for the last four years has been darwin cook who's in nova scotia so not exactly close or anything like that but i think eventually that might happen as well still on the east coast yep yep it's not that big a deal chris somney came in from portland yes he did and we've had mike Choi from la we had doc shaner from colorado so still not too far out there yeah so he's your white whale darwin cook yes yes and i've met him at shows you know he recognizes me recognizes the face recognizes the name of acme comics and stuff so maybe someday just matter of finding finding the angle yes i i can appreciate when i was at marvel it took me the entire time i was there to get mike mignola to do a single piece <laughs> uh, it was a thor cover but it, i would call him every six months just chat and get a sense of like what would you do and eventually i got it like i figured out what he couldn't say no to and i remember calling him with the offer and him he's like yeah you got me (laughs) and then the one catch was he he wanted to get paid a certain amount and i ran down the hall to bob harris's office i'm like you got to approve this rate this was literally the week i'd given my notice too wow so i just it had to like i to get the rate approved as far as i know that's the only thing he's done since then 
for Marvel, yeah. yeah. Which is ridiculous. It covered a Thor. And I think that it is that, that case sometimes because I always say not everybody is right for every signing, which some people understand that and some people don't. But Free Comic Book Day... For everybody involved from you guys as the creators to us on our side of just keeping everything from falling apart is is breakneck. We have 1,500 people come through the door that day. People are coming through the sketch line, you know, 10 times in some cases, spending all day getting sunburned, just standing out there waiting. And so that's the kind of thing where from the creator side of things, you guys have to be able to knock it out. Like there's no time to go search for reference. There's no time to add color to things. In most cases, it's got to be like rough pencil, Sharpie. Here you go. You know, thanks for coming by kind of thing. And not in a cutthroat way, in a, in a very loving way. No, it's, it's you want to satisfy the most people the best way you can. I remember getting off the plane last free comic book day. And, uh, and I, I went up to Jamal and I said hello to him and Jamal Eigel. He has like this huge bag. I'm like, what do you have this huge? We're here for two days. Like, what, what, you know, I had my backpack and like a bag of books. He's like, ah, oh, well, I brought markers and pens. And I'm like, listen, dude, just do headshots. Trust yep. me. Just the people are excited and they just want a little piece of something. It's not that you're giving them short shrift, but you're, you're working within the circumstances you're working in. And I think, I mean, I wasn't sitting next to to Jamal to see what he was doing, but I have a feeling he switched to headshots once he saw the crowd. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Holy moly. And it's the kind of thing where we've been, I guess, blessed is the right word, that everybody we've brought down has been really cool. And we try to give them a heads up of what's coming their way. And sometimes they're like, oh, I didn't, you know, I heard it was big. I didn't know it would be like this. But everybody has been great about, like you said, giving everything that they can. And of guys, themselves, and you guys are amazing about it because you 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 bring us in, you put us up, you feed us more than we could ever possibly eat, <laughs> and I can eat a lot. And it's funny, I remember last year we were working, and you guys you guys can you know come on in. It's five o'clock, and it's like I'll keep I'll keep drawing. I mean, it's it's and that's that's the sucker. dedication that you guys give. And I was saying to Jermaine during the womanthology signing even because it's it's a lot of the same crowd comes out to every event that we do in a great way because then when you guys go to heroes con then those people drive down to charlotte and see you and then you know you did a quick sketch for them at free comic book day but they don't mind paying 20 30 dollars for a full sketch or paying for your mini comics and then you guys see a return for your investment of your time and your talent that absolutely happened last year at heroes con there were people that I, I half recognize their faces just because the line is moving so quickly. But once they said, you drew this for me. Oh, yes, I remember you because I remember <laughs> the drawings more than the people. Um, <laughs> and, and you guys put up scans or photos so you can see like it's a refresher. Like, oh, yeah, I did draw that uh, Kyle Rayner Green Lantern. So I want to talk about one last thing. You've been essentially back on the comic scene for 10 years. Yes. And I have noticed just from from when I knew you. I guess four years ago, like a very rapid evolution. Let me, I'll, I'll paint the picture this way. When I started getting into comics, I was a little kid and I was drawn to Super Friends, G.I. Joe. That, that's my generation. And your real basic superhero comics. And then at a certain point, you sort of graduate to a Vertigo book and you start getting into black and white indies and you, you sort of leave the superhero stuff behind. This is just my, ch- I, I feel like this is a thing that happens to a lot of people. And then at a certain point, you sort of want to relive 
the 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 joy of your childhood so you try and mm-hmm. seek out the superhero stuff again and want that feeling you seem to have compacted what for me has been <laughs> 30 plus years of of reading into a 10 year span where when i first met you it was that early years all the stuff was exciting these events were a big deal and now i hear you sometimes on the podcast where you think like uh these events this company's doing this <laughs> and that it's like i just want to read uh, a fun all ages book that's that just gives me a complete experience mm-hmm. and i just want to do you notice that or for you is it just you're not it's it's all happening all the time and you're taking in so much content like you're constantly reading you're constantly sort of keeping yourself up to date or historically based that you haven't noticed that change um, according to my Acme Comics subscription list, I'm currently reading 53 monthly titles, which that does not include any miniseries or events or one shots here or there, or things that we just mislabeled as non-monthly titles that actually are. So usually Tuesday night, I'll read 20 comics after I get home from work to get ready for the podcast, to get ready to talk to customers about that stuff. So I always just mainline the new stuff and then it's done, you know, as far as single issues go in one night. And then I usually try to read a graphic novel of some type every week. I'll go over to the independent section and just grab whatever off of there. And, you know, maybe I've overlooked it, but I'll, you know, I'll know more about it and be able to sell it better now that I'm back. And I'll read a graphic novel in one night and then... I try to reread something. So like you said, you know, going back to something you already enjoy and get excited about it. So I'll try to go back and reread something and get excited about that again. And then I also have a short box of back issues at home that I'm always taking a couple issues from a day or a night. And right now that's the Sandman Mystery Theater. But I mean, do you find, do you notice your tastes changing because you're mainlining, because it's coming in so fast and so rapidly, are you noticing like that you're burning out on a certain type of thing, or are some things perennial? And I will say I'm burned out at this point. You know, no offense to them, but on you don't have to name names. Well, yeah, but most of the most of the big Marvel stuff, I'm pretty burned out on. But at the same time, I still love Daredevil. What Mark Wade and Paolo Rivera are doing on Daredevil, I think Dan Slott. And his run on Spider-Man is so much fun. And when I read that, I get to laugh every issue and I get to have a great time. Ultimate Spider-Man, anything Chris Somney draws, I just know that like he's sitting there smiling while he's drawing that page. And he's having as much fun drawing it as I am reading it. And so like the last issue of Ultimate Spider-Man that he put out, I was like, oh, that sequence was so much fun. I just texted him when I as soon as I finished reading it and he was like, that was my most, the most fun thing that I had drawing on the whole issue. And it just, you know, it made its way through the page and that's the, that's the connection. And that's the joy of comics. This guy's enthusiasm for what he's doing just radiates off the page. And that key, that's the kind of vibe. Any book that I can read keeps me fresh in comics. You just feel that enthusiasm that this creator has for the work radiating out of it. And so I don't feel the same thing reading Avengers by Bendis eight years down the line of him being on that title, but it's all these other places that, that really bring me into it still. I mean, it's, it's, it's very impressive and you retain so much of it. Like I read things in 
within three hours i don't even know what i just read and like i'm in the moment <laughs> and then i just move on to the next thing uh, i'll test myself though like the next day at work i'll be like let me see if I can remember everything that I read. Like, not what happened in the books, but just, like, let me see if I can even remember all the books that that I read last night. So you're not taking notes? No, no. Is there anything we didn't talk about? I don't think so. Yeah. I wrote a comic once. What'd you what write? That? I wrote a comic for Carly to do for her senior thesis. How many pages? I mean, I broke it down to 22, and I think she only finished, like, 11. <laughs> Was it any good? It was all right. It was based on a short story I did. Uh, speaking of things you, you did, do you have any of these uh, emo recordings from your youth? Yes. Why? Do you want me to send one over? Well, that all depends <laughs> on if you want to share it with the world. No, least... I've got them in my iTunes library. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I still have the, the five-track Boy Meets World themed EP that I recorded in 11th grade. That's the, the Ben Savage show? Yes. <laughs> Wow. Yep. Tremendous. That's tremendous. <laughs> uh, thank you, Stephen. I'm sure we'll talk again soon without microphones. When the spawn meets world. There you have it, folks. Stephen Mayer and myself talking about comics and other stuff. Here's what you need to know about a bunch of things. Write them down or hit rewind because I'm about to throw some information at you. First, stuffsaidshow.com. That's the website for this show. Show notes, bonus content, bits and pieces, it's all there. Relative to this episode, acmecomics.com. That's the website for the store, Acme Comics, which is where I will be on May 5th free comic book day at Acme Comics it's kind of awesome it's not kind of awesome it's awesome I was there last year I'm looking forward to doing it again this year and if you are there and you listen to this show let me know because that would be cool speaking of Acme Comics you heard us mention Jermaine a number of times the manager at Acme Comics and you're probably wondering hey how could we didn't talk to Jermaine I'm working on it he's a rascally one he's uh He's a mysterious fellow, but we're going to crack that mystery. We're going to get him on this show. We're going to talk to him. And he knows it's going to happen. He's playing hard to get. Okay, so I said Stuff Said Show. I talked about Acme Comics. Stuff Said at gmail.com. That's how you can email me directly. You could also leave comments, by the way, at StuffSaidShow.com. And speaking of comments, the ongoing contest is leave a comment on iTunes. You're entered in to win a piece of original art by me contest ends may 1st so put your comments in there if you don't feel like putting in a comment if you want to be all anonymous about stuff just click five stars i have learned that really it's about the rating so just click five stars everybody do it my ratings will go up people will see the show on itunes more people will listen that will all that's that's what we're going for more people listening so tell your friends too so we got the website, we got the email address, we got Acme Comics, we also got the Acme Wave Projector, which is where you can also listen to the show. And I think that's everything, right? Free comic. Yeah, that's uh, that's about all the stuff I have left to say. I'll see you next time.